for every child brought to you by UNICEF New Zealand. Welcome to the program. I'm your host, Ethan Donnell, and you're listening to For Every Child, UNICEF New Zealand's radio journey, exploring some of the most pressing issues facing children around the world and here in New Zealand. This month, we bring you a very special episode sharing the stories of displaced children and refugees affected by conflict. Right now, children are being used in war zones in at least 20 countries around the world. Not only are their lives at risk, they risk becoming child soldiers, being forced into child labour, early marriage, or being trafficked. Syrian girls are being married off early as their families seek to protect them and secure their futures, and children fleeing war are easy targets for trafficking into slavery. These children need our protection, and UNICEF New Zealand recently launched an urgent appeal to help them. One such young person was Mamuna Barnes. She now lives in Lower Hutt, just outside Wellington, but as a child she lived through two civil wars in both Liberia and Sierra Leone. She was only nine years old when the violence first erupted in Liberia, separating her from her mum. We had just gotten home from school. We heard guns. And I started screaming, I said, what's that? She said, get down, get down. And people started screaming, there's guns, there's rebels. No more life ended the minute I, on the, that afternoon when I was taking off my uniform. It never has gone back to the same. As a child, I just thought, I just kept thinking, I want my mom. Because I still didn't know where she was. We still didn't even know whether she was still alive. It was worse than even being in the war itself. The rebels in Liberia at the time, they were really horrible looking. Just the sight of them would make you shiver. They had blood on their face. These rebels ate our dogs. They killed people. They smelled of blood. The first group of rebels were all men. Eventually, they were boys. My dad arranged a way for us to get out of Monrovia on, on the army ship, the Syrian army ship. I think there was about 200 of us. A lady and her baby got pushed. I don't know what became of the lady, but her child was in the sea. Mamuna escaped to Sierra Leone with most of her family, leaving her mum behind. After that harrowing journey, the family would be safe for almost five years, before civil war broke out in Sierra Leone too. There was no escape this time. Mamuna, who was now 15, was taken hostage by rebel forces. A rebel commander protected her and for two years she lived under his thumb. In the beginning they said to me, you're pretty. And I said, so what is that going to do for your war? What am I going to contribute to your war? Why are you taking me? I need to go to school, I'm a child. And they just laughed. You'd see little girls with hardly any breast on their chest, pregnant. Rebels have made them pregnant, beat up because they're not performing their wifely duties. She's a child. How do you expect her to be a wife? First of all, she has to figure out how to be a girl. Lucky for me, this person who took me, for some reason, found love in me. I used to be scared when he went out to fight because he was my protector. He was the only thing blocking other rebels from doing whatever they wanted to do to me. There was a group in Sierra Leone. They decided they were tired of their towns being set ablaze. These hunters will end the war. In my mind, I was a rebel. I had been fighting it. I said, the enemy is coming. Why is the enemy coming? I hope the enemy doesn't touch me. I'd rather die than have the enemy touch me. And these people were coming to save me. One of these hunters took Mamuna home. The UN then helped the family to find asylum. New Zealand would take them in. And after two long years in transit, Mamuna finally landed at Wellington International Airport. As soon as we got off the plane, I started crying because I actually wanted to get back on that plane and go back to where I came from. I had a lot of nightmares when we came. I didn't even want to be labelled as a refugee. I decided one day that this year I'll find my mum. I don't care what happened, I'll find her. An official back in Liberia helped Mamuna search for her mum. They placed an ad in a local newspaper. Amazingly, her mum answered. 
A colleague that worked with her had remembered her story about her little girl that was lost during the war. They talked and they laughed. The two began regularly talking on the phone. This was in the early 2000s in the days before Skype. Mamuna was saving to visit when she received some unexpected news. And I called in and a stranger told me, um, your auntie can't come to her phone because her older sister just passed away. I couldn't cry, I couldn't say, I just said okay. And then I went to my bathroom in my flat and collapsed on the floor. She sent pictures, the pictures that she was able to save in the war. That gave me some peace. I don't see the point of war. People like me are wounded. Things that we had to see, people taken away from us. The day the war broke out was the last time I hugged my mom. When I, last time I saw her, after that, she was in a casket and I was trying to wake her up. So I create war and allow these things to happen to very young minds. The war has ended. Some of them took lives. How are they being rehabilitated? That was Mamuna Barnes, an incredibly brave young woman, and we're really grateful to her for sharing her story. We turn now to the story of another young person, this time a young man, who grew up around conflict and who was taken in as a refugee by New Zealand. Ahmed was only six years old when the sounds of bullets and rockets interrupted his childhood in Afghanistan. Our reporter, Shelley Knowles, spoke to him about the terrible ordeal of fleeing his home country and the family's subsequent new life in New Zealand. I remember when I was six years old, um, things got really bad. You know, at night time, I can't go to sleep. Everyone is worrying. There's bullets going on. There's rockets. You hear this noise all the time. So as a kid, like, uh, I was always scared because, you know, I would see my mom crying all the time and my dad worrying. And you were only a small boy when this was happening, just six years old. Can you tell me about the militias? Because in, in Afghanistan and Pakistan, a lot of people do get kidnapped. A lot of kids do get kidnapped for ransom. Um, you know, um, even teenagers, moms, daughters, uh, people, militias or mujahideen. They would drive by and if they see you, if you can hold a gun, you know, they'll, they'll just take you with them. They don't tell your family. They don't tell anybody you know. And you're gone. Some of those kids, they give them guns and you just, you are in a war. So how were your parents able to protect you? My father was always concerned about us. He had to keep us at home and to hide us. You know, the kind of feeling that you get when you're hiding for your mom in the closet, just to make sure that she doesn't find you. It's that kind of feeling, you know, hiding your kids. Like we actually had a basement that, that was hidden under a tree. There was a door and you had to go underground. And most of the time, like that's, that's where they were when Malaysians were around. They would be driving around most of the time looking for young people, take them with them. Were you scared when your dad told you you were going to be leaving? When my dad was sending us over the border to Pakistan, we are going to this country and it's going to be awesome and it's going to be beautiful and there's going to be playgrounds and there's going to be kids and there's going to be schools. Obviously, it didn't turn out to be like that. What was it like then? How did you get into Pakistan? You had to go as, as, a, as a refugee um, and you had to find ways to cross the border. For me and my mom, we kind of sneak into a, a, a truck that was bringing food to Pakistan. So we were in a box. The whole journey would have been 12 hours. There was a fight that was going on in the border as well and they, they wouldn't let anybody go through, no, no cars. So we were basically at the back of the truck for, for a whole two days. Nothing in there. So where were you initially? When we got to Pakistan, we stayed in Peshawar, which is northern part of Pakistan. We ended up going to a refugee camp. 
there were like seven of us living in one tent. There were no food and we'd be crying for food and for water. So you had no food and water. What was the area like? There was a river going around the corner, which was really dirty. Um, there was a lot of flies. A lot of kids uh, would get preventable diseases like malaria. Diarrhea was very common with the kids. So your mum had to worry about finding food for you all, as well as looking after your health. First, you were worried about uh, your kids getting getting killed by stepping on a mine bomb or getting hit by a bullet or being taken away from Malaysia. And then you go to this other place where you think it's, it's safe, there's no war, there's no bullets, but then you're worried about uh, having to feed your kids and having to provide, you know. That must have been so stressful, especially for your mum. What about your education? Were you able to go to school? For me, it was very heartbreaking because until I was nine or ten years old, I didn't actually have access to school. Just all day long, you know, hanging around the dirty river, trying to find plastic bags, make it into a kite and fly kites. How old were you when you finally got back to school then? I started school like when I was 10, I think. So growing up on the streets, I was street smart, but I wasn't school smart. So for me, it was pretty easy to catch up. Your dad was finally able to join you in Pakistan. What did that mean to you? My dad is my idol because, you know, I've seen the kind of things that uh, he went through and the things that he took to get us out of there. It does hurt to be able to leave your country and to be able to leave the people that you love, that you care about, to move on. I've been in New Zealand for about 15 years and I haven't been able to go back home because it's, it's just never safe. Uh, so many children lose their lives just trying to go up in the mountains and up to the field trying to find food and never make it back. And you've been in New Zealand for 15 years now. How does that feel when you reflect on your journey? I, I've been through a lot and I've seen a lot and I've learned a lot. And at, at this point, like I, I still feel very lucky and very fortunate and so very thankful to where I am and how I got here. And finally... Can you tell me what it meant to you and your family to receive support? The little bit of that we got, it's mainly the reason why we're here today. Sometimes people just need that kind of support. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in change and I'm a big believer in, you know, making a difference. Um, I believe, you know, somebody who's suffering right now and, and having a really hard life, being given an opportunity, they will do good. That was UNICEF New Zealand reporter Shelley Knowles reporting on the lifelong impact of conflict on children around the world. When we talk about the stories of displaced persons and children affected by conflict, it's impossible to ignore the ongoing conflict in Syria. This has become the biggest humanitarian crisis of our generation and the impact on children is horrendous. Hanar Singer is the representative for UNICEF in Syria. What follows is an extract of a speech that Hanar gave to UNICEF staff at a conference in Spain. Here she talks about the conflict in Syria and the children who continue to endure unimaginable suffering. I'm here today really to bring you the voices, the faces, the stories of the Syrian children. Children who continue to endure unimaginable suffering in the midst of the world's largest humanitarian and protection crisis. Indeed, Syria, a country that until 2011 was self-sufficient with a rich culture heritage is a mosaic of ethnic and religious diversities, has to a large part of it has really been reduced to rubbles. However, 
I'm not coming only with stories of tragedy, but I'm coming with stories of hope, of determination, of resilience for a better future. Stories that humble each and every one of us. Stories that motivate us and give us the courage to continue to do what we are doing. We have all seen the crisis in numbers. Nearly half a million have been killed. 85% of the population of what used to be a middle-income countries now live under the poverty line. The decrease in life expectancy of the population has been decreased by 20 years. 130 humanitarian workers have been killed. But look at the loss on the human side. What does this mean for children? In Syria today, ordinary decision as whether to go, to send a child to a school or to a playground are often becoming tragic decisions of life and death as schools and playground has been consistently and systematically targeted. What evil spirit does it take a human being to come and detonate himself or detonate a VBID in front of a primary school to kill 40 children between the age of 9 to 11? Explosive weapons account for over 84% of the recorded incidents affecting civilians. Child labor, including involvement in smuggling, in begging, in salvaging of explosive weapons is continuously on the rise. Child recruitment absolutely on the rise and worrying to the extent that the age has gone down to seven years old now. In a recent study by WHO, they have found that one out of four children now are at risk at developing a heavy mental health disorder because of the traumas that they are witnessing. But let's look at the specificities of the Syria crisis. Living under siege. The Syria conflict is known for the use of siege as a weapon of war. All sides to the conflict has been using it what could be termed siege warfare. It's something like Middle Ages, where one side tries to starve the other into submission. I want to share with you this map. This is really how the country is divided now. The dark gray is the ISIS-controlled area, but this is changing by the day, as the government of Syria, being supported by the Russian forces, is really gaining more ground. To the far left, to the far right, you have the Kurdish-controlled area. To the far left, you have Idlib, which is controlled by the armed opposition groups, including Jabhat al-Nusra. And then you find the lighter color that is controlled by the government of Syria. But I want you to look at the red spots. These red spots con constitute 18 besieged areas. 15 are besieged by the government, especially around Damascus area. One is besieged by ISIL, which is in Deir Zor, where 200,000 people have been besieged since over a year. And two are besieged upper north in Idlib by other armed groups. In spite of this besiegement, thanks to the UN-brokered cessation of hostilities this year, I'm talking only this year, we have been able to conduct 63 interagency convoys and 35 airdrops reaching around 750,000 civilians in the hardest to reach area. UNICEF alone was able to 
uh, reach approximately 400,000 in 16 of the besieged areas with life-saving materials and, and nutrition and health supply in addition to education equipment. Madaya is a town 30 minutes away from Damascus. It used to be the resort areas for the elite of Damascus and actually from the Middle East. Lots of poets and singers used to go there and lots of songs have been sung about Madaya. But I will never forget a cold night of the 16th of January 2016. When we entered Madaya after torturous negotiations for over six hours at the checkpoint, just negotiating access there. A crowd has gathered. The only light that came were from the phones we carried and from the car lights that, uh, uh, that we were driving. There was no electricity there since four months. The convoy's lights revealed pale, hollow face, emaciated people shivering in the freezing cold. It was shocking to see how wasted a human being can look like. They were so weak that they hardly noticed that some help has finally arrived. Children and adults just had one question. They could not listen even to what we were saying. The question was, Auntie, do you have a piece of bread? One woman, a mother of six, hugged me to whisper in my ear. I just lost my elder son to starvation. Please help me to keep the six, uh, the remaining five alive. Then the story started coming of people surviving on soup made of water, made of uh, water and spices. The harsh truth of the ordeal suffered was recounted multiple times over and over again by the population there. Each account how harrowingly similar. Sometimes it was hard to imagine, is this true? Are we listening to reality? Is this happening in the 21st century? I was taken to what was euphemistically called the health center. It was in fact one room in the basement of a house. I was ushered into semi-darkness. I was met by the sight of limp bodies lying on a blue blanket, blue blankets on the floor. There were several children, hollow-faced, all too weak to move or even to cry. The doctor, the only one in town, in a bloodied white coat, took me to the one and only bed. It had what it appears to have two bundles. As I looked closer into the darkness, I was startled. It was actually two skeleton-like young men they were drifting in and out of consciousness. Ali, 16, he was hovering between life and death. Rajya, my colleague, tried, jumped into the bed and she tried to resuscitate him. I remember quite very well, one, two, three, one, two, three. Then I took over and we tried. But he tragically just drifted away in front of our own eyes. Not because of uh, a disease, not because of injury, but because he was starved to death. I heard the whimpering of a cry. I looked around and I saw his family. His family was there, but they were too weak to cry. They were too weak even to mourn. The second occupant to the bed just held my finger and he was whispering, 
Did he die? Did he die? There was silence. Then next to me, the doctor started to cry. But there was no time to waste. Our teams of UNICEF, ICRC, and WHO started working feverishly with the remaining cases, assessing the situation, taking names and cases, administering whatever medication we were able to get along in the convoys. With the health workers around, we called for more volunteers. We conducted an immediate on-the-job training on how to use the therapeutic uh, feeding and the treatment. And we continued working until 5 o'clock in the morning when we were called that we had to leave now. Lately, my team, led by this fantastic Rajya, was able to maintain daily base with the health workers inside Madaya to conduct remote therapy. Since January, we have returned four times to Madaya. Increasingly, we were impressed to see the power of humanitarian assistance. When we were given access, we were making a difference. And this is my darling Mohammed. When we saw him in January 2016. And this is Mohammed now in April 2016. Water has been used in Syria as a weapon of war. Since the onset of the conflict, water availability in Syria has reduced by 50 to 80%. Five million people are left without water as a result of what we call deliberate and systematic water cut. Most of the water sources in Syria are in ISIS-controlled areas or Jabhat al-Nusra-controlled areas. So whenever they want to negotiate, uh, negotiate they simply switch off uh, the water. In uh, Aleppo alone, Aleppo alone suffered 40 times uh, water cut. But where, um, and uh, armed groups have shut off the city water supply for over 100 days since August 2015, depriving up to 2.1 people, uh, 2.1 million people from water. But in response to this crisis, UNICEF also has massively scaled up its wash response. In Aleppo, UNICEF is the main provider of clean water, tracking over 1.7 billion liters of water to Aleppo, benefiting 700,000 people every day since August 2015. 10 million people are benefiting from access to safe water through the supply also of water disinfected. But also not only water tracking. We also provide water resources as a durable and effective measure, alternative water resources. We have over 450 groundwater wells that have been established, over 100 kilometers of pipelines in various diameters, in addition to four major water and sanitation infrastructure has been done there. We are able to provide safe drinking water to 10 million people. You would be proud if you were me. And I come to education that has also been under fire. Two million people are, two million children are already out of school. We have verified over 4,000 attacks on school since 2011. Can you imagine since 2011, 4,000 verified? One in four schools are out of use and the education sector has lost over 50,000 um, teachers. 
But UNICEF also is there to stay. We are there to stay and deliver. UNICEF, since the beginning of the onset of uh, the crisis, we have invested heavily in supporting children to continue their education. We are providing over 2.8 million children with textbooks and the supplies. We have rehabilitated over 440 schools. We have also constructed over 300 prefab classrooms. And how about for the out-of-school children? Innovative programs, self-learning, four subject matters that children can learn alone or with the help of uh, an adult. This year, we're reaching to 150,000 uh, children. And then Curriculum B, which is an accelerated program that should reach 400,000 uh, uh, children also. The health system has been almost totally shattered as a result of the five years of con uh, conflict. Only one in three hospitals is currently functional. Medical personnel and health facilities continue to be directly targeted. And since 2015, 45 hospitals have been under attack. The health sector have also lost tens of thousands of doctors. And this is our friend, Dr. Walid, a gynecologist in Aleppo who devoted his life to saving countless children in the war-torn city. He was killed just exactly four weeks ago by a mortar attack last month, when after go going home after treating wounded civilians at a UNICEF-supported clinic in Aleppo. I stand with respect to all the humanitarian workers. When the guns go silent, this is when UNICEF is also there. And we actually negotiate silencing the guns. One of the most critical elements of healthcare is in immunization. And Syrian national immunization rate have dropped from 90% in the, uh, before the crisis to nearly zero in some areas. In 2013, 36 cases were reported of polio. But thanks to UNICEF and WHO intervention, the last case was in January 2014. But this time, this week, as we are talking, UNICEF and WHO are conducting the first nationwide routine immunization campaign since the crisis. From Damascus, we are targeting 1.6 million children, including 550 in hard-to-reach areas and besieged areas. This includes incredibly immense and complicated negotiations with different parties to the conflict to allow us access. First and foremost, because of the amazing resilience of the Syrian people themselves, who are an example to all of us. How, what does it mean to keep hope alive and not to give up? But most importantly, it is because of nearly my fantastic over 200 strong staff, Syrians and expats, that believe wholeheartedly of the concept of stay and deliver. Every single day, across the five governorates and under the shelling and under incredibly odd conditions. I pay tribute to these colleagues. I pay tribute to all that they do, all that they give, and all what they stand for. They are our true heroes. What will future historians remember from our present time? That millions of people were deliberately or carelessly targeted, that their homes Hospitals and schools were destroyed and entire cities bombed to rubbles that millions of men, women and children were forced into displacement. This is when your role comes, your role and my role. As global citizens, 
As humanitarians, you and I have the obligations and the responsibilities to take action and to make a different kinds of history. So in the name of Ali, in the name of Saja, in the name of Muhammad and millions of children, we have to raise our collective voice to bring an end to these violations and to end the suffering of millions of children and to call on all parties to the conflict to stop attacking civilians, to stop attacking schools and hospitals, to stop recruiting children, and to stop using water and siege as a weapon of war. So let me leave you with a final thought. Syrians' families and Syrian children have one major desire, to return to their home, to live in peace, and to contribute to the reconstruction of this beautiful country. I hope we all will join hands to achieve one goal, and one goal only, to constantly and continuously, patiently and courageously protect and promote the right of every Syrian to live in dignity and in peace. That was Hanar Singer, the UNICEF representative in Syria, about the continued impact of the Syrian crisis on children. That's all the time we have for today's show, but we're always happy to hear from you and really pleased that you joined us. Please feel free to get in touch with me, Ethan at unicef.org.nz. That's Ethan at unicef.org.nz. If you want to find out more about our work to help children in Syria and around the world, really appreciate you joining us here on For Every Child. Please tune in next month when we'll be bringing you more stories about children here in New Zealand and around the world. For Every Child, brought to you by UNICEF New Zealand.